Good morning. It is good to see you all here this Sunday. This is usually a really low attendance Sunday for us. You know, our teens are on their way to New Orleans right now. Or maybe they've arrived already. And those of us who have children in the school system know that spring break has started, and so many of our families are heading off for spring break and vacations. It's a beautiful day today, and we could all be out walking or, as Perry said, working on our taxes. (laughs) But you know, sex sells. Sex also makes us uncomfortable. I have gotten more uh, emails and comments in the last few weeks leading up to this platform than any other platform I've ever written. I get this sort of, so, what you going to talk about? (laughs) Huh? Are you really talking about sex? So sex, huh? And therein, I think, lies the contradiction of American society. Sex sells, and we're really not too sure what to do about it, and we feel kind of uncomfortable, and maybe we ought not to talk about it. This is, after all, a society where we don't seem to think you can sell a beer unless a half-naked woman presents it to you, right? I always think that's funny. You know, beer, really? Is it a hard sell, beer? (laughs) People aren't that into it, so you really need to kind of sex it up so that it's appealing. And it's also a country where we offer, in so many school districts, abstinence-only sex education, despite all of the statistics and all of the studies that show us how abstinence-only sex education not only doesn't keep people having safe sex, it doesn't keep them from having sex either. In fact, it enables them to have sex without understanding how to make it safer. A society where there are all sorts of kind of um, promise dances and promise rings, where we have an expectation around adolescence, where even actually, you know, um, Twilight, the the young adult series, kind of adolescent series about vampires, which I read and loved and highly recommend. Um, <laughs> but it got sort of a press, I think, for being, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's about sexual experience and there's a teenage girl who has sex. She actually doesn't have sex until she gets married in that book. And then ultimately, you know, sex is really related to vampirism. It's actually a, a, a highly... Um, conservative understanding of sexuality and adolescent sexuality. Um, it was written by a, a Mormon, little known fact, about <laughs> Twilight. Um, but, it, but it ties right into a lot of American culture and American society and sort of what we want to and don't want to think about sex. So this platform is, is titled SEX, but it could have been sex. Why are we so weird about it? Now, I want to just offer a caveat, one that I, that I often think about when we're talking about sex, that in this room, we have many individual experiences with sex, and statistically, it's very likely that many of us have negative experiences, that we've had experiences of sexual assault or sexual violence, 
I'm not going to go into that with any kind of depth here at all, but I want to just acknowledge that this is kind of a little bit of a trigger warning and awareness that just talking about sex can be not just kind of funny uncomfortable, but deeply uncomfortable for some folks. And an acknowledgement of the many experiences and histories that each of us might bring individually to that subject. So I want to hold in awareness and in care the reality of that for many of us in the room. But while those experiences speak to why sex can be hard for individuals to talk about, of course, those histories that we carry with us, they don't totally explain why it's difficult for us as a society. Why we kind of become either sort of snickering (laughs) 11-year-olds or zipped-up Puritans when it comes to sex and sexuality. Washington Post film critic Anne Hornaday actually wrote a couple of weeks ago about sex and sexuality in films, about depictions of sex in film. She was talking about um, partly the idea that, that it's difficult to really shock anymore because there's so we're, we have available to us so many um, sexual and sexualized images in film and on TV and certainly online. You all know, some of you may have seen the the musical Avenue Q, which has a variety of really great songs, one of which is The Internet is for Porn, Uh, kind of trying to get to the ultimate reason to have the Internet, I think. So Anne Hornaday, talking about sex in films, wrote, the decades um, that ensued sort of after a certain, a certain time found Hollywood both exploitatively embracing and phobically avoiding sexuality on screen, alternately pandering to and resisting the dictates of religious leaders, civic censors, hypocritical ratings boards, and audiences occupying that singularly American psychic space between Puritan disapproval and prurient voyeurism. And I think that what she says about sex in film can really be understood as kind of sex in the media broadly and even kind of sex in American society, the way we think about and talk about sex, these sort of two extremes of, as she says, Puritan disapproval and prurient voyeurism. Just a note, which you may or may not know, she mentions hypocritical ratings boards. I don't know how many of you know about how ratings are done in movies in America. It's very different from other countries um, where violence is is one of the things that really gets you a a high rating and and restrictions on who can see the movie and sex doesn't. In America, it's the reverse. And actually, ratings boards in in particular, when they look at sex, they're looking at um, uh, what's considered kind of standardized American sex, which is more acceptable than non-standard American sex. So, um, so homosexual sex, same-sex relationships and sexuality uh, gets much stricter ratings and therefore higher restrictions on who can see it. So there's a whole lot in that um, in that in and of itself in ratings and film. It's been interesting for me as I um, as I counsel couples before they um, before they get married. I talk about a whole variety of things, and um, uh, you know, have they talked with each other about sort of their health and about um, you know their finances and who does the housework and all of those things that you want to have talked about before you get married. And and one of the things I talk to them about is whether they've had conversations with each other about sexuality and their sexual health and sort of being able to talk with each other about the uh, peaks and valleys of sexual experience throughout a marriage. And I've been so aware that I have had to really work on my own inner 11-year-old to be able to do that. <laughs> 
in my premarital counseling sessions with couples, to be able to look a couple in the eyes and talk about how it's important to be able to talk about sex with each other, to model that for them. And these are people who are getting married, for heaven's sakes. (laughs) Actually, marry different gender, different sex. Sex is one of the only kinds that we do tend to talk about in mainstream America, particularly in kind of the legal arenas where American society really likes to connect sex with procreation in particular. Margot Kaplan, who's a sex-positive lawyer, works on um, on uh, sort of um, sex-positive issues in law, wrote in the Washington Post about that, um, the legal precedence and sort of how our legal system and our judicial system talk about sex. She wrote, our courts and legislators are still strangely squeamish about sexual pleasure, tending to treat it as a topic to be avoided or an immoral indulgence the state should prevent. When they address sex, they often reveal their embarrassment by using Victorian-sounding euphemisms, and these are from from um, from law or from judicial um, uh, from sort of from cases. She writes, such as an intimate relation of husband and wife, or awkwardly clinical terms such as the physical act. It's romantic, isn't it? <laughs> Other times, she goes on, they express outright disgust. Remember, she's talking here about sexual pleasure. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia warned that prohibiting states from banning sodomy might hearken a nightmarish future in which states could not criminalize masturbation. (laughs) Imagine, Margot Kaplan writes. So right there in our laws, we have some of that sort of... um, uh, Puritan and certainly heteronormative, but really a married normative understanding of what sex is for. It's for procreation. Margot Kaplan in that essay goes on to talk about how even the laws that have expanded sexual freedom have done so with a sort of variety of weird um, euphemisms and talking around and and essentially saying, you know, well, we don't we don't want to kind of have the government in people's business, but with no sense of articulating, you know, sex is fun and that might be nice um, in, in the laws. Now, all of that gets real, I think, when we talk about our children and sex. My children are six and two, and we were out yesterday in the beautiful weather at Brookside Gardens, walking around and looking at the flowers and the trees in bloom, and and a pond which was full of water and full of frogs. And the frogs were doing what frogs do in the springtime. (laughs) There was another family nearby, and the, the kids were fascinated with the frogs, of course, just because they were frogs. And, um, and so all the children were gathered around looking at them. And there was a group of children about my children's age. And, um, and the father said, uh, look, there are the frogs. The frogs are hugging. Isn't that nice? He sort of used that like chipper voice. It's so nice, isn't it? The frogs are hugging each other. They like each other, those frogs. That's why they're hugging each other. <laughs> See them hugging? And I thought to myself, dude, the frogs are not hugging. <laughs> And your kid is probably old enough to know that. You know, we're not talking about sort of intimate descriptions of of adult lovemaking. We're talking about biology. We're just talking about where you get tadpoles from. 
And yet we're still nervous to talk about these things. I think of myself, of course, as as very open, although I did not jump into that conversation and try to explain to the other person's child exactly what the frogs were doing. But I think of myself as open, wanting to teach my children to both enjoy their bodies and have boundaries around them that feel safe and appropriate for them, an understanding of both what's safe and what's fun. And still, I have found myself spelling out the word just like it is on the program in front of my children, you know, S-E-X, as though there is something wrong with it. Now, again, I want to just note that I'm not talking here about children being pulled into adult conceptions of sexuality or sexual interactions too early, but just about children as human beings, therefore as sexual beings, learning how to navigate that part of themselves in the world and in developmentally appropriate ways over childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. So what is a parent to do with all of this? Do we just say that the frogs are hugging right up until, oh, I don't know, college? (laughs) When someone should probably figure out the frogs weren't hugging, I don't know. There was a blog post that went viral a while back. You might have read it. It was actually written in response to another blog post that went viral. The first one was sort of the standard um, the standard line. There's actually a number of country songs um, about this concept. It was a, a letter that a father wrote to his daughter's future boyfriends. And, um, and so the original blog post sort of said... Um, Essentially, if you, if you touch my daughter, I'll kill you. You know, I'm gonna protect her and, and, um, and so don't try anything ever. Um, and so then someone else, Ferret Steinmetz, wrote a blog post in response to that. And I, and because I'm a little bit, I can't say the whole title. I'm gonna bleep it, okay? But the title of that blog post, which then went, went viral, was Dear Daughter, I Hope You Have Some Bleeping Awesome Sex. It was written in response to the idea of this father kind of trying to protect his daughter from her own sexual awakening, her own experiences in life, and talking instead about a desire, a hope for his daughter to experience sexuality in a positive way and to experience sex in a positive way. He wrote this, this is Ferret Steinmetz, because He wrote, because consensual sex isn't something that men take from you. It's something you give. It doesn't lessen you to give someone else pleasure. It doesn't degrade you to have some of your own. And anyone who implies otherwise is a man who probably thinks very poorly of women underneath the surface. There's a little bit more nuanced, um, I think, look at this around adolescent sexuality from uh, Corrine Shannon, who wrote on Slate, about a number of months ago, about growing up as a teenager in Denmark. She did a study abroad in Denmark where there's a much different, more open attitude toward sexuality and particularly toward teen and adolescent sexuality. She talks uh, in that article about going to Denmark and you know, falling in love with a guy and and uh, staying over at the guy's house. They were 18, I think, at the time. And waking up and being terribly afraid, although she knew that there was a different understanding of sexuality in Denmark, being terribly afraid of what the parents would say. And and the the her boyfriend's mother greeted her in the morning with, essentially, do you like coffee or tea? So she talked about this very different environment to grow up in and about how she's tried to raise her child in that environment as well. Her child is now an adult. 
She writes, my daughter and I never had the talk either. I think that's the talk that the frogs aren't really hugging talk. We never had the talk either, but not because I was afraid to talk to her about sex or because I wanted to shelter her from the facts of life or because I willfully pretended not to know that she had become sexually active. Rather, I strived to create an ongoing sense of openness and trust between us. We talked about sex many times over the years as the subject came up when it seemed appropriate, just like we talked about anything else. I hope I created an atmosphere that allowed her to embrace her sexuality and her sensuality, to trust me and to trust herself. Both of these sentiments, both the one about kind of raising a child with a more European understanding or at least Danish understanding around sexuality, and also the blog post that went viral, can be seen as in some ways part of the sex-positive movement. The sex-positive movement is defined by Elena Gaboche in a sex-positive renaissance as an attitude toward human sexuality that regards all consensual sexual activities as fundamentally healthy and pleasurable and encourages sexual pleasure and experimentation. The sex-positive movement is a social and philosophical movement that advocates these attitudes. The sex-positive movement advocates sex education and safer sex as part of its campaign. I think all of that is part of sort of a broader movement of kind of feminist reclamations of sex and sexuality, taking sex away from the kind of sexualized version that we see in the media, the the half-naked woman who's trying to sell you a beer, and reclaiming it as a personal experience that everyone has a right to. In its more sensational demonstrations, sex positivity can come out in things like um, feminist burlesque shows, you know, stripping, but it's not for the guys, it's for the woman who's, who's stripping herself, and Miley Cyrus, who can either be seen and is seen, I think, both as a sort of hypersexualized victim, or alternately as a strong person in charge of her own sexual self and interested in sharing that sexual self through her performance. Less sensationally, sex-positive frameworks are often behind changing the laws that we heard about earlier and also intersect in many ways with reproductive justice work, the idea that we all have a right to our own sexual interactions, to own those sexual interactions and all that goes with them. So great, that seems easy, right? We can just go ahead with talking about how great sex is and, uh, you know, it's just good for everybody, it's fun, we should write laws about how it's fun, we can have any kind of sex we want as long as the other person or people are consenting adults, and that's awesome because we're so feminist and not that easy. So along with the sort of feminist response to to both sexualization and also to the kind of more Puritan um, uh, sex shaming, we have sex positivity, there are also feminist responses to sex positivity. The general concept in those responses, which are sometimes framed as feminist sex negativity, although not always, is that, um, is that sex positivity, the idea that sex is always great and good and we should all, I guess, have as much of it as we would like, that that idea itself is a privileged position, comes from a privileged position in the world. That for folks who inhabit privilege in a variety of aspects of their lives, it may be well and good to think about sex as positive and fun. But for others, sex really can't be, the experience of sex can't be divided from the societal constructs around it, from the cultural constructs. 
that make the reality of sex in our society and in individuals' lives very different. A blogger who um, uh, blogs as radical transfeminist talks about sex-positive writers and thinkers by saying, they create space for every sexual possibility except one, the possibility to consider whether sex may not be nice. And then Trudy, who blogs at Gradient Lair, talks about sex positivity in this way. In theory, it's wonderful. In reality, I find it oppressive and incredibly stressful and anti-intersectional. I find that it tends to resist the stereotypically puritanical side of the patriarchal binary. Did you stay with me through that sentence? (laughs) It's the stereotypical puritanical side of the patriarchal binary regarding women and other marginalized people's sexuality. So... Sex positivity resists that, but, she goes on, then sits in a resistant space where white women's sexuality is celebrated as liberating, while black and other women of color, regardless of sexual orientation or sexual practices, still battle a great deal of sexual policing, stereotypes, and oppression. So the idea there is that sex positivity works for a certain section, of the society, right? But doesn't take into account the kind of lived realities that weave through our society, the oppression and privilege that weaves through all of society and culture. We talked earlier about female burlesque, which is one of the ways that sex positivity has found sort of a a voice or a space. I think you can look at the resistance to sex positivity by taking a look at one of its siblings, the pornography industry. In theory, Porn has the potential for self-expression and a self-actualization of a sexual self. And I think I'm positive that there are folks within the industry that experience it in that way, that experience it as a positive way for them to explore their own sexuality and to share their sexual self. However, in reality, porn can also be exploitative, particularly, and this is the key when you look at the sort of um, intersectional justice pieces, particularly for those who are more marginalized in their other identities or in their identities, for folks who are poor and therefore dependent on their, on their work as their work as sex workers for income, for women, for people of color. That's where that idea of intersectionality comes in, the idea that sex-positive thinking is all well and good for those of us who are relatively privileged, who have some level of choice about how our sexual selves are seen and whether they are seen. But for women, particularly for women of color, and I would say most especially for folks who are genderqueer or trans, that's not the case. I think there's a special element there when we think about folks who are outside the binary gender dynamic, so who identify as trans or genderqueer, that experience in and of itself is often hypersexualized in our society. Think about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the common question that, that people have and unfortunately so often articulate when talking to somebody who is trans in particular, have you had the surgery yet? <laughs> That's an invasion of a personal body space. It's a hypersexualization of a person's private body and private experience. And so within that construct, sex positivity takes on a really kind of different tone. The ability to be sex positive within that framework gets trickier and trickier. 
May, who blogs at Velociriot, puts it this way, and I like how she says it. The point of all of this is that while on the surface sex positivity might seem great and fun and good, it's supporting a number of ideologies rooted in institutional oppression, from rape culture to racism and everything in between. We need to recontextualize our conversations about sex as feminists in a way that isn't exclusionary or harmful in nature. So there's something here about the reality of sex, I think, about taking sex-positive thinking into the lived experience of sex and sexuality, particularly those who are most marginalized in our society. That idea of the sort of reality of sex ties into some of the depictions of sex that we talked about earlier in the media, where sex positivity, the sort of owned experience of sexuality, is distorted into a kind of airbrushed version of a sexual life, so much so that, as I said, it can hardly shock us anymore. Anne Hornaday, that post-film critic that I talked about, was talking about sort of where we find shock now in films. And she writes, in fact, in a newly pornified pop culture, the most shocking depictions of sex may not be the most painfully outlandish scenarios of nymphomaniac or the explicitness of Stranger by the Lake. These are two of recent films. But the portrayal of sex as a part of daily life and as such a source of projection, frustration, vulnerability, disappointment, and awkward, uncosmeticized lust. These shows and movies restore sex to something of its rightful place, not as an impossibly aspirational ideal or a coarse nihilistic compulsion, but a vector for expression, playfulness, intimacy, and recognizably human foibles. And there's a real appeal there, I think, in what she says as she's resisting this sort of Hollywood version of sex and sexuality and looking instead at the real lived version real sexual expression, sometimes nice, sometimes not nice, and not standing alone, but part of our individual lived experiences and the cultural and societal frameworks in which we live, too. There still, though, I think, is something missing in that that kind of experience with sex. In thinking about this platform, someone asked me if I would be talking about sex as an expression of love. Which, of course, is a lovely way, so to speak, a great way to talk about sex. Except that sex is not always, and certainly not exclusively, an expression of love. Even more problematically, I think, that concept puts sex in the context of relationship. Tells us that we can only understand sex in the context of some relationship, whether it's long or short relationship. And what I'm really interested in is kind of sex as it plays out for the individual, really in sexuality as part of human experience. Not just talking about sex, or as they so romantically put it in some of the legal literature, the physical act, but talking about sexuality, a part of human existence, We often explore our sexuality within the context of a relationship or the context of multiple relationships or the context, at least, of brief relationships. But even then, our sexuality isn't owned by the other person or defined by the relationship. And I would argue that's true even for those of us who are in monogamous, long-term sexual relationships for our entire adult lives. 
Even so, our sexuality is not that relationship, but it's our own, owned by us alone. The same way our personality is ours alone or our thoughts are ours alone, our emotional or psychological framework. I think that there you find a much richer way to look at sexuality, at the sexual experience. For one thing, it enables us to talk about what happens when we feel disconnected from our own sexuality, when either sex doesn't sound good or when sexual attraction just isn't a a significant experience for us. What I would argue is that that's not really a disconnection from sexuality, but simply a different way of expressing it, of experiencing our sexuality. Trudy at Gradient Lair, the blogger I quoted earlier, talked about asexuality and lack of sexual attraction. And relatedly, but not the same thing, a lack of sexual contact. So there's sort of two separate things. Talking about sex positivity, she writes, thinking about sexuality in a positive way, in an empowering way, also means being able to say no, not having to prove anything, not having to perform any stereotypes related to any sexual orientation or actual sexual behavior. I want to note that she's not talking about consent, per se. Consent is sort of always part of a sex-positive framework, the idea that any sexual experience is consensual. That's sort of a baseline, right? And some folks would add on, you know, the phrase enthusiastic consent. (laughs) You're not looking just for like, okay, (laughs) but for enthusiastic consent. Everybody really wants to be there. (laughs) So that's a baseline, consent and enthusiastic consent. What Trudy is talking about is actually the experience of saying no to sexual behavior in general. She identifies as someone who occasionally, I think she says she's gray asexual, gray A. So she identifies often as asexual, essentially. Sort of sexual attraction is not something she experiences much. And so that needs to be then part two of what's acceptable in human sexuality and human sexual experience something that sex positivity can run right over that experience. The advantage, then, of of thinking about sexuality as individual, part of ourselves as human beings, is that it can take us away from the kind of stereotypes and expectations that society places on us and that we place on ourselves. I mean, how many articles have you seen categorizing who's having sex, who wants to be having sex, what kind of sex they're having, how many times they're having sex, if they would have more sex if the dishes were done, how happy people are that they are or aren't having the sex that they do or don't wish that they were having. There's a lot of shoulds in those studies. And in so few of them is there any acknowledgement of the sexual person a person who carries sexuality rather than the act of sex alone, the physical act. The person as a sexual being who lives out that sexuality in any variety of ways, including being totally uninterested in sex. So where does religion come into all of this? I feel like depending on which part of the platform you are listening to or really keen into, you will either leave thinking that I'm the clergy person that tells you you can have sex with anyone you want to as long as they want to, and it could be lots of people at the same time. It's great. Or I'm the clergy person who tells you you don't actually have to have sex with anyone else ever again, and that's awesome and perfect as well.
And maybe that's true. (laughs) In some ways, the most sensational thing happening this morning may be just that we're talking about sex in a religious community. Historically, traditional religions have been the source of hang-ups around sex, have been the source of sex-negative thinking, or at best have ignored the whole situation. That's changing and has been changing in progressive religious circles, ethical culture among them. There's a great group called the Religious Institute, founded by Unitarian Universalist minister Deb Hafner, which brings together folks from a broad variety of different religious traditions. It's really multi-faith, looking at healthy sexuality in religious communities and how religious communities can promote healthy sexuality for their members and their clergy and all, all across the spectrum. Their declaration says, Our culture needs a sexual ethic focused on personal relationships and social justice rather than particular sexual acts. All persons have the right and responsibility to lead sexual lives that express love, justice, mutuality, commitment, consent, and pleasure. They were involved in um, some guidelines for sexually healthy adults. They put out with a number of other folks as well working on that, which includes, you know, the ability to have their own, have one's own sexual orientation and one's own gender identity respected and to respect that of others, to engage in sexually healthy ways in relationships, to, um, to be able to, to learn about safer sex and how to have it, and also to have sexual feelings one doesn't act on, and to not engage in sex as well, in sexual acts or sexual attraction. One of the ways that this and many other progressive religious communities approach the concept of human sexuality is in our uh, children's education, actually, using OWL or Our Whole Lives, which here at West we teach in alternate years to our 7th and 8th graders. The way it's talked about is OWL grounded in a holistic view of sexuality. Our whole lives not only provides facts about anatomy and human development, that would be that the frogs aren't hugging, but also helps participants clarify their values, build interpersonal skills, and understand the spiritual, emotional, and social aspects of sexuality. When I was growing up as a Unitarian Universalist, I took the predecessor to OWL, which was called AYS, About Your Sexuality. And I can vouch for the reality that the program offers not just some of the information, but really a way of engaging and talking about relationships and about our own individual sexuality and what that means for us to be sexual beings, to have it be part of our humanity. There's an owl for adults, too. I just had a colleague who finished teaching a series of Saturday classes for adults in her congregation that, just like the Young Owl program, it's about engaging, learning about, and affirming all expressions of sexual identity and sexuality based on the idea that we didn't necessarily learn it the way we wished we might have in childhood and adolescence. My colleague was telling me that um, she had a a couple of adults who were in the class, three or four of them, uh, all friends, who missed one of the Saturday classes and then came in the following week apologizing that they hadn't been there but bringing for extra credit some brochures. Um, They had been in New York City and gone to the Museum of Sex and uh, thought that they should get a little bit of credit for having done that in lieu of adult owl. 
So even the possibility of within a religious community having conversations like that, conversations where we acknowledge and welcome the sexuality that we have, our sense of ourselves as sexual beings, part of our humanity. I think actually that ethical culture has something in particular to say about that to say about individual sexuality, personal sexuality, tied to the individual and the individual life, and how it plays out in relationship. You know, in ethical culture, we talk a lot. We have that maxim, elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. And the thing that I love about it is that it honors both the relationship and also the individual. I think if we think about it really broadly, We can think about that concept of the individual in relationship. The idea that our own personal sexuality is in conversation with our own lived sexual experiences, with our relationships, with societal and cultural constructs as well. And although that sexuality is often, although not always, explored within relationship, it's still our own individually. Our own sexuality is still a thing. We don't lose it within the context of the relationship itself. Ethical culture offers an emphasis on relationship while acknowledging the worth of the individual and the individual human experience, which seems to me to be a great way to look at sexuality. Sexuality, which is a significant, not weird, not just giggly part of human life, human experience. So I'm not sure, in the end, if I'm sex positive or too aware of the intersectionality of societal constructs and oppression to be so, but I think I'm sexuality positive. That we as a religious community, as a humanist movement, can affirm sexuality, the way that we experience it in our own lives, the way that it changes over the course of a life, the parts of it that we experience in relationship and the essence of it, which at its heart is only ours individually. Sexuality as part of the whole realm of human experience. Let's hope that we get to a place where that's what we can teach our children, where that's what I can teach my children, not just that the frogs are hugging on a spring morning.